Good morning, everyone. We're going to have our storytelling time now, and uh, we do this as a church to, um, to stay connected to each other and to get to know each other in deeper, more meaningful ways. And uh, it's been a really great thing. And today I want to introduce Leroy Peterson as our storyteller. Leroy, come on up and tell us a story. Good morning. It's always good on Sunday morning, right? I've entitled this, How Does God Answer Prayers? As a boy at 10, I told God in no uncertain terms that I was in no way becoming a preacher. No way was it going to happen. Nope, not me. I'm not signing up. Uh, was that a little audacious? <laughs> what does a 10-year-old know about preaching? Well, there's some backstories. The Johnson family had moved to Everett, Washington to be our pastor. Their oldest son, Dave, and I became great friends. Living six blocks apart, it was easy to visit each other's homes and to play whatever sport was in season or to check out the town. So in a way, I kind of got into the parsonage by the back door. I got to experience what life was like Monday through Saturday for a preacher. What I felt was a loving, caring family that constantly reached out to the joys and cares of the congregation and the city. I saw God at work in that household through the chaos. Somehow the chaos registered as much as the love, and I said, nope, this is not for me. No preacher me. Footnote. Walter Johnson retired from the ministry after over 72 years and Dave just recently retired from the ministry after 50 years, survivors of God's chaos. Backstory two. My father was known in town as one who prayed. Yes, I heard his prayers at our dinner table and at Wednesday night prayer meetings. But he was dad, so no big deal. But as I would walk with him on downtown shopping trips on a Saturday, people would pass by and nod or shake his hand and say something like, thank you, Victor, for praying. And they would mention a person or an event that dad was connected and praying with. Yes, my dad was known for his prayers. At the age of 10, my sister told me that dad was praying for one of his five sons to become a preacher. This was very upsetting as I had made sure that God understood what my ideas were on that subject. I was the youngest, so surely I thought I was the safest. 
except two of my brothers had graduated from Northwest Bible Institute, now Northwest University, and they were to be in the ministry, but at the time were not and never did. The other two were into their careers and had no interest. Uh-huh. Oh, my. I felt trapped. On the one hand, the prayers of my father, who when he prayed, all heaven stopped. And to make it even a little more hard, he preached in code, Swedish. On the other hand, my great reluctance for a career in the ministry. So fast forward a few years, quite a few. Last year, you may remember my wife, Carolyn, told you about a Sunday school that began in our home in Japan about 50 years ago. A church began there also some 45 years ago. One day, the young Japanese pastor came to me and said the congregation would like me to preach once a month. I looked at him with a smile on my face, and I said, Reverend Amida, I'm not a preacher. And I couldn't finish the word, for God said, what in the world are you doing here? Teaching. God said, do that. <laughs> I finished the word preacher and added, but I will teach. So we shook hands and bowed. I don't remember ever telling Reverend Umeda why I was smiling so broadly when we parted. Now we remember the original question. How does God answer prayers? For me, it was with surprises. Dad got a son to teach behind a pulpit, and I didn't have to live in a chaotic pastor's house, just a missionary one. Is this how God answers some of your prayers with surprises? A footnote. My father never knew that my family went to Japan as missionaries, for he died when I was 18. But he died with God's promise that I was in God's hands. Thank you for listening. This morning, our scripture reading is from the book of Ephesians. Please follow along in your Bibles or use the screens. I'll be reading from verses 11 through 22 from Ephesians chapter 2 in the New American Standard Bible. Therefore, remember that formerly you, the Gentiles in the flesh, who are called uncircumcision, by the so-called circumcision, which is performed in the flesh by human hands. Remember that you were at that time separate 
from God, from Christ, excluded from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were formerly far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who made both groups into one and broke down the barrier of the dividing wall by abolishing in his flesh the enmity, which is the law of commandments contained in ordinances, so that in himself he might make the two into one new man, thus establishing peace, and might re reconcile them both in one body to God through the cross by it having put to death the enmity. And he came and preached peace to you who were far away and peace to those who were near. For through him we both have our access in one spirit to the Father. So then, you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and are of God's household, having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole building, being fitted together, is growing into a holy temple in the Lord, in whom you also are being built together into a dwelling of God in the Spirit. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Good morning, church. Again, my name is Peter. I'm one of the pastors here. And we're going to continue in uh, the book of Ephesians. Uh, the series is called In Christ. And today, uh, the title is Requisite Community. This idea that uh, community is necessary. We acknowledge that relationships are messy and complicated and uh, really ridiculous, if you think about it, uh, and doesn't feel worth it sometimes. But it's absolutely necessary. Uh, this truth rings uh, deeply for me. When I was in seminary, I remember, uh, some of you may have read this, but Pope John II, I think it was, he, uh, uh, he taught uh, a series of lectures, I think uh, over 150 of them, if I'm correct, and uh, it was called The Theology of the Body, and I remember being in seminary learning about this uh, amazing body of work that was put into understanding the human body from a biblical perspective. And this idea started with Pope John uh, Paul talking about how the whole Bible begins with a wedding, this idea of connection between Adam and Eve. And then the whole Bible ends with a wedding, with a wedding feast between Christ and his bride. And the story in between is all about how to go from A to B. How do you go from a broken relationship 
to a reconciled one. And that is the entire story of why you and I exist. Within that framework is how we live our life, where we live our life, how we do what we do is all within that framework, that we are made for relationships, for connection with each other. That's the whole mission of God. That's why we exist today, to perpetuate, to continue in this divine mission of reconciling all things to himself. And Christians, on top of that, believe that there isn't any one other human being that can facilitate this reconciliation process that only one person can do, and that is Jesus, who is the Christ, the Messiah. And that's what I think this passage is talking about today. I don't know how these statements uh, you know, land for you, but for me, it just rings true. I know, I know, and I know, and I know that I'm made for relationship that I'm made to belong to a body, that I am not created to be alone, that all my wiring, that there's on a micro level embedded in who I am on a cellular level is this need and desire to connect. And I remember feeling that when I was learning about this biblical framework sitting in seminary class. And since then, you know, there's been other uh, bits that have really reinforced this truth for me. Here's a few examples that whether you're a Christian or not, I think you can, you have to acknowledge something is going on here. Uh, The first one, I love this category of examples, but I read a recent account of a feral child. And this, uh, this is, he's still alive today. And uh, he grew up with wolves. He was raised by wolves. And then he's now been reintroduced back into society. But he's having a really hard time. Because as a kid that didn't have other human beings to grow up with, he really didn't develop uh, his ability to have empathy. And so this is the first lesson that uh, I come back to all the time, is without the constant presence and interaction of other human beings, I will go awry. I will become feral in some way. I experienced that. You know, uh, whenever Susie goes away and uh, she leaves me alone, it's just amazing to me how little time it takes for me to degenerate into just a lesser evolved version of myself. Just what I eat, how I spend my time, what I think about, the pace at which I live life, the energy that I have with the kids, just me and the kids, it just goes down. So I'm just no good alone. I I am not kidding. I'm not exaggerating. It is a sad scene in the Song household without the connection that I need. I know this. I just become feral. Another uh, category of example that I love is sort of the research around community that's been done uh, with rats and heroin. Uh, Some of you know, I said heroin, and five of you just popped your heads up. There's a famous research done. uh, it's, It's the Rat Park research. And what they did was they were trying to figure out how to cure heroin addicts, right? And so they had these traditional ways, and uh, they weren't very successful. And then this one doctor said, you know, I think it's not just about the technique or the science of it, but I think it's about the social aspect of life, 
that really impacts addiction. So in order to test his theory, he set up an ideal situation for rats. There were lots of rat friends that rats can hang out with. They had lots of toys and their favorite ways to sort of move about. And they had all the food they wanted. And uh, for the purpose of this experiment, they had two different waters that were offered, regular water, H2O, and water that was laced with heroin. And they found that in the, within the context of Rat Park, rats almost always preferred just the regular water. And uh, the rats who happened to drink the heroin water didn't get addicted to it. They didn't even like it. They tasted it. They went back to regular water, or they had some, and they had a high. But then they just got off the high and went back to life as normal, and they did not become addicts. Parallel to this setup, they had uh, rats living in isolation without the presence of other rats. And uh, they were also given two types of water, heroin water and regular water. And almost all of these isolated rats became heroin addicts. You can Google this, read about it yourself. I put a link in the sermon notes if you want. And here's the fascinating thing. The rats who were isolated and then uh, they became addicted to heroin. They were then introduced to Rat Park to be with other rats. And guess what happened to their addiction? Gone. It's fascinating. In fact, uh, there's a whole body of research now coming out that's rethinking how addictions are treated. And they really believe at the core of this new way we're supposed to treat uh, addictions uh, has to do with connection. It's not as much uh, about uh, the chemical aspects as it is about the social aspects. So that tells me something. It definitely gives me pause. And it, for me, it resonates. It just rings true. It lets me know I need people in my life. If I don't have people, I will get myself into situations I can't get myself out of. I am no good when I am disconnected. There's uh, several articles that I put in your sermon notes for you about the impact of social isolation and separation as it impacts our physical bodies. Another uh, just outstanding studies that have been uh, published by the National Institute of Health uh, that when you are socially isolated, there are psychological things that happen, like you become more depressed. Yeah, that's maybe more intuitive of a jump to make. But did you know that it changes your hormone levels? Did you know that it causes inflammation in your body, in your joints, that your organs don't do as well? You can read all about this, how socialized isolation is physically killing us. Again, I read studies like that, and I, and I just have to pause and acknowledge, yeah, that rings true. You know, I make poorer choices when I am cut off from other people. When I'm not seeing people, when other people aren't seeing me, when I'm not answering to other people, I am not as good as when I am having to do, do those things. Uh, another uh, book that was recommended to me by somebody in this congregation two years ago, uh, and I read it, it's a book. Uh, co-written by two secular uh, doctors. It's a book called Younger Next Year. And the whole book is about sort of this idea of how to get younger next year by being physically fit and eating well and all that. 
but I didn't know what the book was really about. I thought it was just going to be about the science and, and offer some techniques and such. But the whole book was really about marriage. These two doctors, they go on to talk about the importance of having a marriage that you stay in over the long haul. And this is from a purely uh, sort of a um, physical health perspective. He says, you know, you spend the first half of your marriage investing in the other person. And what you're doing is you're creating a relationship that you can take for granted during the second half of your marriage. Because during the second half is when you need the social support to stay healthy. That if you've sown good seeds in the first 20 years, let's say, in the second 20 years, you're going to help each other. You're going to be the primary, that relationship's going to serve as the primary engine for why you engage in healthy habits. He says you cannot do it alone. And he's not advocating for marriage or anything like that, but he's advocating for health, which for him means talking about this idea of connection as it relates to health. And again, I read a book like this, and it gives me pause. It's like, oh, shoot, I need Susie more than I realized. And she definitely needs me. I got one on her, finally. And then, of course, you know, some of you know the rise of co-working spaces like WeWork. WeWork has been exploding. I have a good friend who uh, works at WeWork, and they've expanded now, and they've created these co-living spaces called We Live. And it's just communes, basically apartment buildings that are designed with common spaces that force you to do laundry together, force you to play pool together, forces you to dine together. You know, we can try to take shortcuts for a while and pretend that all we need is digital, our digital connections or whatnot, but it's not doing the job. We are physically getting sick. We are psychologically getting depressed. We are not going to make it if we are separated by each other. And so reading all of this, Remembering back to my seminary days when I was learning about the framework of why uh, we are the way we are, uh, I have to conclude that relationships matter, that community is absolutely necessary. I understand that relationships sometimes can be pretty bad. They get really complicated, really messy, really fast. But after I registered all my complaints, you know, I, I sum, officially submit all my complaints to the people who take these sort of complaints. And after all that, I still have to acknowledge there's no other meaning, no other purpose in life outside of other people. All the hoop, hoopla that is life, all that just comes down to one thing, other people and our connection to them. Uh, this is my little community. Uh, last week, I talked about uh, this picture and the uh, Asian invasion at the UW Cherry Blossom, you know, quad. You could still, if you look, you can still see a little blame on my face there. Uh, uh, but um, I'm going to think about this picture now. I remember the spiritual lesson I learned. You know, I talked, I've been talking a little bit about this blame thing that I have. And uh, I didn't go into it, but I'm going to share, uh, share about it more fully one day. But I'll just tell you, the reason I blame is because I need to feel safe. 
And the reason I need to feel safe is because my deepest, deepest fear is the fear of abandonment. And so the reason I have to push you away and make you feel bad and judge you and criticize you and make sure you know that it's all your fault is because I love you. Is, that's all I'm saying. That's what I've learned. If, but so there it is, my little community, and I need to connect to these people. We are one body together, and when there's any kind of tension or threat of breaking in this body, I feel the anxiety rising in me. I can tell my hormone balance is changing. My cortisol levels are up, and all sort of thing, uh, things are happening in me physically, spiritually, psychologically, emotionally. Verse 16 in today's passage captures the whole mission of God. Okay? Right here in one phrase, one pithy phrase. In one body, that's us, connected to each other, to God through the cross. In one body, to God through the cross. If anybody ever says, why are you a Christian? Ephesians 2, 16. In one body to God through the cross. If anybody says, what's the point of God? Verse 16, in one body to God through the cross. What's the meaning of life? In one body to God through the cross. What should I do with my life? In one body to God through the cross. This is your call. This is why you exist, to be reconciled to each other onto God through the cross. That's the whole show. Uh, this is my father-in-law. Uh, some of you have uh, been uh, really helpful. We really appreciate it. And I want to tell a little story. When Susie and I visited him, he was delirious. He was not in his own mind. In fact, we found out uh, two weeks later, he has no record, no recollection at all of me being there. I get no credit as a son-in-law for being there. That's really bothersome to a small man like me. I can't believe it. Um, but you know what he asked for? Again and again and again, at the end of it all, you know what he wanted? His wife. That's all he kept talking about. Actually, that's not true. He asked for water first, and then he asked for noodles, and then he asked for his wife. You know, that's how men are. Men are simple like that. Uh, but it was a lesson for me. When you, waking up out of six weeks of being in a coma, the thing you want is your wife. That's amazing to me how much we are wired for connection. And he's been getting better, and uh, he is doing, doing just great. <clears throat> um, we have in uh, this uh, passage for us this vision that God has of what he wants us to look like. These are such beautiful words. Near, peace, one, reconcile, one body, access, fellow citizens, fitted together, growing, built together. This is what God wants for his creation. The alternative is this. Far away, separated, barrier, wall, two, enmity, far away, strangers and aliens. And I want to submit to you that when we are living in a fragmented society, when we live in categories, when we see 
that group as the other people that we don't have to worry about, that we get to judge or we get to disdain or we get to feel better than. When we live in that perpetual state of existence, there's a lot of stress and anxiety that's latent and swirling around in the world. We feel that we can't be happy by ourselves. We're not meant to live in this fractured way because that's God's vision. The other thing this passage teaches us is that only through Christ we can be reconciled. Uh, these words here, separate from Christ, excluded, strangers, no hope, without God, or with Christ, in Christ, in whom he himself is our peace, access in one spirit to the Father. Just a quick mental exercise to uh, illustrate this point about Christ. This week, if you can, pick one couple. It can be a couple of friends. It can be a romantic couple. Doesn't matter. Just pick a couple that are supposed to be friends or together in some way who are experiencing stress or conflict right now. Maybe they had a falling out. Maybe it's not as major as that. But maybe there's just, they're just not doing so well. And call them up and say, I promise I will fix your relationship. And then spend the whole week trying to fix that relationship. See what happens. I kind of do that for a living. And here's what usually happens. I fail. But I don't just fail normally. I fail spectacularly. Because I, what, what always ends up happening is the two people that I was trying to help use me at, as a common enemy third party. They both start just hating on me together and it stabilizes their relationship and they mistakenly think they're reconciled by hating me together. That's best case scenario. Go ahead, butt in and see how that goes. I'm just saying, you can't do it. And so if I read things like only Christ can do it, he himself is our peace, I'm like, thank God there is a person who can do it. Nobody else has the kind of competence and the wisdom and the patience that's required to reconcile just two people together outside of Christ. We need ways to absorb and to forgive and to have perspective and to be humbled, and to hold out hope. How can we do that for each other without Christ? I don't see how. So I submit to you, I think it's only through Christ we can actually experience this most fundamental thing that we long for. And it's really fundamental. It's really pervasive. McNee defines spirituality as the core dimension in humanity that seeks to discover meaning, purpose, connection with self, with others, and ultimately God. And then Woodstock, a separate person, defines sexuality this way. The physical, emotional, psychological, and spiritual energy that permeates, influences, and colors our entire being and personality in its quest for love, communion, friendship, wholeness, self-perpetuation, and transcendence. In other words, the definition for spirituality is basically identical to the definition of sexuality. And then a woman named Gunger, she puts these two together and she says, and when I hold these two things together, what I hear are just different facets of the same longing for connection, for wholeness, for something outside of ourselves, for an undoing of our aloneness, 
for a sense of belonging, for a sense of being seen and seeing. So we live as people longing for connection underneath all of our endeavors and wishes lies this fundamental longing to be reconciled to each other and to God. And we are never, ever really going to experience peace in our physical bodies and in our body as a human race. We're not going to experience peace until we are all reconciled under one roof onto God. And the real big question is, how does that happen? And so we have verse 14 and following. I want to highlight this word for you. For he himself is our peace, who made both groups into one and broke down the barrier of the dividing wall by abolishing in his flesh the enmity so that in himself he might make the two into one new man, thus establishing peace and might reconcile them both in one body to God through the cross by having put to death the enmity. This word enmity appears twice, as we just read, and it describes our tendency. It's not what we want, but it's what we do. It's not what we choose necessarily, but it's the only thing we know to choose. We have lost our capacity to seek peace with one another, and we need an outsider to help deal with the enmity that lives and breathes inside of us. We are not allowed to have groups outside of this mission. Every single person you've ever known, every single person that has ever lived on the face of this earth, God loves. God loves the whole world. And his desire is to reconcile the whole world to itself and to himself. That's the heart and vision and mission of God. And that is our mission. A few months ago, I asked the membership of this congregation about the load-bearing limit of this church. I asked the question, in this day and age, does our church have the engineering, the necessary parts in place? Are we fitted together in such a way that we can bear the weight of politics? Can we bear the weight of human sexuality? Can we bear the weight of the divide in people with different income brackets? Can we bear the weight of differences in race and ethnicity and culture and gender? Can we figure this out? Can we do it together? Are we going to start painting people, labeling them as other, as unworthy? You know, don't we have to draw the line somewhere? The Bible teaches this idea of belonging rather than fitting in. The Bible says things like, boldly approach the throne of grace. And there you will find the grace and mercy to help you in time of trouble. And what that's saying is that it's the theology of acceptance first. You're accepted just as you are, and then the change happens. Because how can change happen if I say I have all the resources, but you can't come in until you've changed? And that's what fitting in is. It's keep your mask on. 
Keep the true self hidden so that you can fit in. Whereas belonging says, no, no, you come unmasked just as you are. And wherever you are, we will connect. And through the life that's generated through that connection, you will begin to become or change. So it's belonging and then becoming. It's acceptance and then change. It's boldness and then grace. That's the vision. That's the strategy of the Bible. And so our first application point is to take on this mission for ourselves. Our job is to be a church here, right here on Mercer Island, straddling Seattle and Bellevue. It's our job to say we can handle whoever comes our way. If any one of us here stands up one day and says, you know what, guys, I have a problem. I've been hiding this issue. I have a secret. I have an addiction. I have a position. I have a thought. I'm going through a struggle. I'm in a season. Any one of us does that, we're saying as a church, we got you. We will not cut you off. We are not threatened. We're not going to paint you as the other. You don't get a label. We're going to engage in God's mission with you. We're going to be your support system. Not just for you, but for us. We need to do that. Well, where do you draw the line then? Aren't there people that are dangerous or threatening or something? And then that's why we have verse 11. I love the way Paul frames this. There's a whole sort of tone of sarcasm in this passage that you miss. You know, Jesus had this sarcastic tone. He said, um... You know, you uh, 99 sheep who are not lost, you know, there's this one sheep that's lost. I got to go find that one sheep. I'm going to leave the 99. And Jesus is being sarcastic because his whole point is, actually, there are no 99. Everybody's lost. And if you knew you were lost, you felt you were the one that was lost. But if you mistakenly thought you were found, you thought you were one of the 99. And that was the test. That was the he who has ears to hear, let him hear right? And this is the same thing that Paul does. He says, you who uh, were uncircumcised, in quotes, who are given that label by the so-called circumcised, he's saying all of you are uncircumcised. All of it is just done by hand. It's in the flesh. Who cares? Doesn't mean anything. All of you are strangers and enemies of God. You are all together excluded from the from the benefits of Israel. And you say, well, there were Israelites. It's like, no, Paul says not all Israelites are Israelites, Because Israel is a category of people who belong to God. And just because you were born an Israelite doesn't mean you are. And so Paul is saying the same thing here. Remember you, formerly you. Remember, remember, remember. You know, privilege becomes invisible and odorless and tasteless. As soon as you have it, you you become defensive of it, and yet you claim you can't see it anymore. I know I get that way in first class when I'm upgraded. I suddenly despise all coach people. I really do. They start bothering me to no end. The way they walk and schlep past me. So dirty. Their hands have not been cleansed by the hot towel that I was given. That's what Paul is saying right here. Remember, there are no lines, no categories that God despises. Because you were that. You were outside. You did not have access to what you needed. And here, you've been brought near. So remember. Remember. We end with uh, 
this verse from the passage. So then, you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and are of God's household. Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole building being fitted together is growing into a holy temple in the Lord in whom you also are being built together into a dwelling of God in the spirit. Would you bow your heads and pray with me? And I want to pray this prayer that I was praying this Tuesday as I was thinking about this message. And uh, I found myself just kind of touched by this thought that came to me as I was praying. And the prayer was this, God, I seek my own betterment and improving and uh, repenting of my sin and just becoming a better person. Uh, But who cares if I'm left alone in that? I want to walk with people. I want to get messy with people. I want to do life with people. It's not going to be perfect. It's not risk-free. But that's where I want to live. And personal holiness means nothing if I am alone. And so help me connect to all the people you would place in my life. Help me to be receptive as well as to reach out. And help me understand the solidarity that I have with all humankind. And I pray that I would have access to all the resources and riches of Christ to help continue engaging in this work of reconciliation and connection. So God, I pray this for our church. I pray we would do this work in Jesus' name. Amen.